0: This is MAKO President Jerry Walker, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canali here, joined as always by my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin. Today on the podcast, we are going to talk education, particularly the Kerwin Commission. We've talked a lot about that on this podcast. However, we do have some new information. They've refined some pieces of this. So we will talk about high-quality teachers and leaders. We'll talk about college and career readiness. And we will talk about early childhood education, particularly pre-kindergarten, which has been a hot topic lately. We'll also talk about elections. We'll talk about what happens if a candidate withdraws from a race, if they don't accept the nomination. Michael, we are back from the summer conference. We had our staff recap meeting where we go through, look at all of the comments, all of the feedback that we've gotten. It's always nice to to hear that feedback as staff to try and take this conference from a B-plus to an a <laughs> Any comments there on our meeting and feedback that you've gotten from the conference before we jump into our program?
1: I, I just I just think it's it's a good reward for our staff who put hours and hours upon hours in, into pulling together an event like this. Um, I, I love it when people come up to me and they ask who do you contract with to run the Mako conference, that big show with thousands of people running around and all this stuff, you know, who's the company that does the work for you. And when I answer, we do everything in house, including all of the graphics and all of the layout and all the content and all that sort of stuff. And people are just aghast that we pull this sort of thing off. Um, I love that kind of feedback. Um, uh, I think it's good for us to get feedback of all sorts. So we get waves of people, elected officials and county professionals and vendors and so forth who all come in and they say, I made great connections or this session was outstanding or that sort of stuff. I love hearing that. I also want to hear when someone says, you know, I think this session went on too long or you missed a topic or there should be a follow up. I want to hear what's next. What do we do even better next time? Yeah, it was also uh, we've gotten good feedback from something that was just unveiled at this conference. We have a partnership with the University of Maryland with this Academy for Leadership in Government and um that we're, we're unveiling a program called the Torchbearers Program, the, the idea of people who have already been through all the nuts and bolts of the academy sessions. They've checked all the boxes. They've gotten their certificate from the academy. They've walked through a session at, at the University of Maryland. Now dig deeper, continue to develop your leadership. Um, maybe you do a graduate program in one of the areas that you've already studied or something like that, a way to keep veterans more deeply engaged. And I think it's going to catch on. It's a good thing for us, too.
0: I think it's a great idea, and especially because, like you said, keeping veterans engaged who have been around for a while, continuing education is always a good thing. For sure. Okay, let's get into our first topic of conversation today. We are going to talk education. We'll talk now about the Kerwin Commission. That's the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. And, Michael, I want to start with high-quality teachers and leaders.
1: This has been one of those topics that the commission has considered very very deeply. I mean they've had meeting after meeting talking about the nature of the teaching profession and how that is a core sort of tenet toward bringing Maryland to a higher degree of excellence and and better outcomes. And so it's no surprise that this is yeah. coming together as as the current commission is starting to crystallize and we're starting to see recommendations, you know, come out of these lengthy reports and paragraphs. Um, no surprise that there's a lot of attention on investing in the teaching profession
0: so there were working groups that were set up by the commission to go out and study various areas and one of those was high quality teachers and leaders last week at the kerwin commission meeting we saw some of those subcommittees report to the full commission and for high quality teachers and leaders the idea here is to have higher paid better educated and more rigorously trained teachers in maryland and to bring their salaries up to levels of professions that you would consider to be equitable to teaching. The first decision that was made that came out of this subcommittee was that teacher preparation will be much more rigorous. This is going to require teachers to pass a set of courses and demonstrate competencies and basic research skills. It's going to require teachers to take courses on curriculum framework, students from different racial, ethnic, and economic backgrounds, as well as different learning abilities. And also elementary school teachers will have to take courses in the core subjects that they will teach in order to have the deep content knowledge of that subject so they can help kids succeed in elementary school.
1: So so I guess part of the part of the notion here is we wanna elevate the stature of this profession. So if you're thinking about heading into teaching Get yourself prepared in multiple ways as opposed to, well, you know, I just I just walked out of my four year degree and I got this diploma and I studied biology. Wonder what I can do. Maybe teaching is an option. The, the theory here is get this kind of training that'll be specialized and will will have you you know be thinking about the teaching setting all the way through your education.
0: That's exactly right. And we'll talk a little bit more in a minute about how they plan to recruit teachers right. and they want to get to teachers earlier in their educational careers and really develop them into that profession. But yes, this is an idea that will raise the education standards for teachers and therefore should result in better teachers, better outcomes.
1: So now now process-wise, all these things on this list are coming from a subgroup. This is a working group who's part of the Kerwin Commission. Right. And as of... The, as of the last week or so, they have reported out as a working group. So now their tentative recommendations sit before the full commission, but they haven't yet been voted on. So it's we don't know that this is the final outcome, but the first draft has been prepared by the group who spent the most time
0: on it. That's exactly right. And there also have not been price estimates released either. So before the full commission can vote, there will have to be cost estimates made, and then that will be presented to the full commission supposed to be on September 5th. And then sometime after that, the commission is actually going to vote on all of the recommendations from these subgroups, as well as governance and accountability.
1: So if you're a sideways sheet of paper, like I sometimes joke I am, and that I'm fine looking at, you know, I'm fine in portrait looking at paragraphs, but what I really like is turning the piece of paper sideways and seeing the numbers. Um, Those people should circle September 5th, maybe as the big day.
0: Prospective teachers will complete a full year of practical experience in the classroom prior to completing their education program and that will be implemented within five years of these recommendations. So by year five, each teacher is gonna to have to have one year experience in the classroom being mentored by a teacher that's already in the profession.
1: So this is this is another case of you know be on notice. This is a profession where you need to have a grounding before you get in the classroom. I, get, I mean, one, one thing that strikes me is, I know we've got some non-traditional paths that that some some especially young teachers take things like and i know of teach for america i suspect there are other sort of things like that but try and get um people who don't have they didn't study for education but are at least interested in public service of one form or another how does a teach for america student fit into that mold
0: yeah and we see teach for america in a lot of other alternative education programs for teachers, particularly in Baltimore City. And the way the commission decided to handle this was in the first year of the implementation of these recommendations, those programs like Teach for America are going to have to provide 100 hours of in-classroom experience. By year five of the implementation, it's going to have to be one year just like it is with every other school.
1: Hmm. I I mean, I, I think that's one of the challenges for this commission is you like the idea of new teachers showing up with classroom experience and at the same time you don't want to create such a barrier that you end up with a standard that there aren't enough people who can meet it and as we talk about teachers spending less time in the classroom so they can focus on on development and other issues like that i mean this is going to be One of the issues of friction in these recommendations, I think.
0: Exactly. And again, you know, they haven't voted on these recommendations. And even when they do, all of this still has to go to the General Assembly. So this will not be the end of, you know, discussing Kerwin. This is not going to become law. All this will be relitigated in the General Assembly. Yep. So we'll talk now about raising standards for licensing for new teachers in Maryland. This is another big component of their recommendations. So here, teachers are going to be required to pass a test of
1: teaching ability to earn a Maryland license. Can you describe... Um, what's the difference between right now I think the term of art is a teaching certificate but the commission is talking about a teaching license that makes it sound more exclusive. Is that the direction this is going?
0: That's exactly right and also teachers that are coming from out of state are going to have to pass this assessment within 18 months or be nationally board certified. That's another big change with this commission and with these recommendations.
1: Okay, so a little less plug and play, but it's Maryland holding this position to a higher standard deliberately.
0: We'll get to the big one now. This is what a lot of people have been talking about. I think over the weekend, there was an article from Barry Raskovar about raising teacher pay. Mm -hmm. And in that article, he mentions that teacher pay according to these subcommittee recommendations, will be raised 10 percent right off the bat. That is true. So the goal here is to raise teacher pay to make it equitable with other highly trained professionals and teacher pay will be raised 10 percent so that they're on par with teachers in New Jersey and Massachusetts.
1: I mean, setting aside cost of living differences, which I know this group has spent some time on and I, I think is still a relatively tough nut to crack, both cost of living Maryland versus other states. But even within the state of Maryland, there's no argument that the, the cost of living is identical in every region of this state. So that's that's complicated. Um, I, I mean, how how much have they gotten into those weeds? So
0: they've discussed uh, setting some sort of regional scale. That has not been ironed out yet. Of course, we know that there are regional differences within the state. We'll have to see. I know there are folks that are going to bring that up as the commission takes a full vote on this. Yep. But as of right now, there's nothing in the recommendations that would set some regional index.
1: So, and I mean, what this begs—I I know, you know you and I have had this back and forth as we've talked about the Kerwin Commission really since the outset of this podcast. Back last year, we've talked about this commission and its work, and at various times we've stopped and taken a breath and said, Boy, they still have a lot of work to do. Well, here we are. It's practically September of year three of a commission that was supposed to be two years to begin with. And I mean, just I'm trying to think through the task of the state creating a new policy that reaches down to the Garrett County School Board and tells them. This teacher, who has four years experience teaching exactly this class, needs to be making fifty two thousand four hundred, not whatever he or she is making today um, we've never seen any instrument or any process like that before and I don't know, you know, somewhere between now, as as this commission is starting to come together, it's going to issue a report and that's going to be turned into legislation. At some point, you have to iron out how would this work? And there's a lot of stakeholders in the process right now of making local education decisions who will be awfully interested in what do they have in mind.
0: Right. So one of the big components here mm-hmm. is collective bargaining and traditionally yeah. – teacher pay has been negotiated at the local level. And with this new teacher ladder, which we'll talk about in a minute, teacher pay is going to be tied to that ladder. Now, pay will continue to be negotiated at the local level for cost of living increases and any pay beyond this teacher ladder. But essentially what the state is going to do here is set a floor and say, as you advance up this ladder, this is what you're going to be paid. Hmm. So the locals will have input on pay outside of that ladder and cost of living increases things of that nature, but the state is going to be stepping in and saying this is the new scale this is what teachers have to be paid
1: if it's as simple as that and I what I mean yeah you know, if if It being what actually becomes law, if all of this turns into legislation and there becomes some sort of a political consensus or compromise that leads to something becoming law and we'll have a new structure, this is a potentially breathtaking change in the way – We we collectively, the entire state and school board and county decision making apparatus works in public education. This is a really potentially big change.
0: And by the way, so at the end of the day, the the goal here is to raise teacher salaries by 30 percent, 10 percent right off the bat to get them more in line with New Jersey and Massachusetts. But as they move up this ladder, their pay will continue to rise and eventually the goal is to get them a 30% pay increase.
1: Hmm. It, it is interesting. I mean, Barry Raskovar is a, a widely followed political pundit and he's, you know, he's been part of the universe following following Maryland politics for an awfully long time. A lot of people read his stuff. When I saw 10%, I, I saw that's slow, isn't it? Isn't right. he underselling the story here? And to some degree, degree he's focusing on the right away. way. But, um, you know, w- whichever way you're talking about the state making this decision and committing everybody to it is an awfully big deal.
0: We will talk now about launching a statewide PR campaign to rebrand teaching as an attractive career and attract students from diverse backgrounds. So this program will be targeted toward the top 25 percent of high school students. And that will be done in each county in order to encourage them to consider teaching. And This goes hand in hand again with elevating the right. teaching profession, trying to get to these kids earlier.
1: But I guess you want to avoid a tree falls in the woods problem where you make big investments and you change the nature of what's really happening in teaching. But if, if you're... Incoming college freshman doesn't know about it. Then how is he or she going to react to that change and decide? I'm going to take those classes. I'm going to get that you know in in class um, you know experience before I graduate, so I'm ready to hit the ground running. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: really crossing your T's, dotting your eyes until you get to the finish line. All right. So let's talk about the career ladder here. This is another huge component of this. Again, this is what salary will be tied to. And the goal here is to develop career ladders for teachers and school leaders that are comparable in the design of those found in Singapore and Shanghai. Singapore and Shanghai were a major part of this commission. They right. looked at systems in other countries and in other states, and they really like this model that you find in Sh- Singapore and Shanghai.
1: And so, So the idea here, I guess, is – that various accomplishments and certifications and so forth across your career would automatically put you into a different tier for salary and compensation and the like. That's that's effectively what the ladder concept is about? That's exactly right. So the state will provide a
0: set of design parameters for this career ladder system, and districts can implement the ladder in different ways, but they must remain within that state framework to be eligible for state funding.
1: All right. So, I mean, this is another case of issues that right now have always been a local negotiation mm-hmm. and the, the local boards of education and to some degree the superintendent and professional staff making judgments about how do they apportion you know salaries and, and so forth this this looks like the shadow of the state government whether it's the state board of education or some other player but it's the state law is going to basically you know create this framework that everybody works within the The degrees of freedom are going to be far fewer and narrower for local decision-making.
0: Absolutely. I mean, a little bit of flexibility, but again, you need to stay within the parameters of this ladder.
1: So, yeah, details to be seen, but this, again, is a pretty big deal. It's a huge
0: deal. And basically how this is going to work is you'll have ladders with two tracks. You have a teacher leadership track and then an administrative track. Teachers who are on this ladder can move across laterally between the tracks if they want to. But the first two levels are going to be common to both tracks, and those are a state-licensed teacher and a nationally board-certified teacher. Right. And again, once you move up this ladder, you know if you're on the teacher leadership track, they'll have a lead teacher, and then you can graduate to a master teacher, and then finally a professional master teacher, and each level will come with a pay increase.
1: So I think one of the things that they're trying to address here is you hear this anecdotal concern that if you're a really good teacher and you're really good in the classroom there's nowhere for you to go professionally other than basically get out of the classroom and become an administrator become an assistant superintendent assistant uh, principal or a principal or into the you know work for the board of education in curriculum design or other things like that and A lot of people sort of shake their head and say, what I really want is that great 18 year teacher to just get rewarded and continue teaching and maybe maybe mentoring or maybe helping with curriculum design as well. But let's keep her in the classroom because she's outstanding. That seems to be one of the things the commission here is trying to react to give give a. A progressive career path that's rewarding to someone who wants to remain an outstanding teacher.
0: That's right. If you want to stay in the classroom, that's where this fits in. You're exactly right. So, for instance, lead teachers on this ladder. They'll teach for roughly 50 percent of their time, but the other time they'll spend mentoring newer or struggling teachers, leading workshops, demonstrations, etc. So they'll retain those high-quality teachers and they'll put them into a role of mentorship so that they can develop more high-quality teachers.
1: Okay. So this is another one that I think the costing out will will probably be eye-opening. But um, but you can you can see where the commission's coming from. You can see what they have in mind as some of the outcomes when they talk about excellence and innovation and education. That's their charge.
0: Absolutely. And this is how they have decided that they need to elevate this profession. They need to retract more qualified candidates. They need to go to high schools and get the top 25 percent of those students into the profession. And they also need to pay these folks so that they don't go to the private sector that they'll consider being teachers. When we come back, we will continue to talk about the Kerwin Commission. We will get into pre K as well as college and career readiness pathways. We'll also talk about elections. We'll talk about what happens if a candidate withdraws from a race, if they don't accept a nomination. Things we learned about elections
1: in Maryland this week.
0: That's right. This could be a regular (laughs) segment on the podcast. We'll talk about all that and more after the break. back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's continue our conversation on the Kerwin Commission. Let's talk about college and career readiness.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, we're, we're spending a lot of time on education and this commission. And I think people who have been listening to this podcast for some time are familiar with this topic. And we have already talked about pre-kindergarten before. Let's put this in some context that the State has a general fund budget of eighteen billion dollars or thereabouts, and they commit six or seven billion towards public education. This is a really big part of the business of state and local government. so, Um, just in money terms, if that's a reflection of our priorities, uh, education, it's in the Constitution. It's a fundamental thing. And this is going to be the big policy spotlight for this legislative session. So it's not these weird guys at MAKO who are trying to make a big deal out of something. Um, This is a big deal. And at some point, at some point these topics are going to get clear enough that the newspapers can start running and saying here's what's being proposed here are the headlines and so forth right now it's eking out in little bits here and there and you know that's the nature of this developmental task force process this commission process but what we're talking about is a really big deal so forgive us our you know indulge us this time but um if you're following state and local politics this is the show
0: yeah we have to be talking about this because you know this you talk about the state budget but county budgets also 50 percent of county budgets go to education
1: yeah typically a county puts more money into education than everything else put together so it's what we care about it's what the state cares about and it's got repercussions on everything else we do
0: Absolutely, it does. And you've also seen a lot of an uptick in this topic. In the gubernatorial race, we've seen a couple of the candidates talking about these issues. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to pre-K. Mm-hmm. But first, Michael, let's talk about college and career readiness. Sure. So the idea here is that the future of our economy depends on a massive upgrading of the skills workforce, rewarding careers that don't necessarily require professional degrees.
1: Right. And so- I mean, I think we've heard a lot. Actually, I think a surprising amount of commitment on this front from the commission, as they've talked about the teaching profession. Uh, it's easy to feel like this group is pigeonholed into the sort of you know. <laughs> You know leather arm, you know leather elbow patch uh, you know, side of education, right. uh, but there's a really serious commitment by lots of members of this commission that we need to be strong, making sure people come out of our public schools with a direction. And for some people, that direction is going to be to head to college and to continue an education preparation for a future career. But a lot of people need to have viable options. A four-year college is not necessarily the fit for everyone and that doesn't need to be loaded with stigma that's part of what the commission has been talking about i think it's an admirable emphasis of theirs mm-hmm. so so i mean talk us through what 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 pieces they have in mind to to move us in that direction
0: yeah so i think you just said the big word stigma yeah. that that has been a huge piece of this we know it's a problem people that decide they want to go into a career in technical education program sometimes feel like they are you know, ostracized by other people who are going to maybe a four year university. That needs to stop, and that's a big part of what this group has been talking about. In fact, they actually envision a Maryland economy which by 2030 close to half of our students are in an apprentice and apprenticeship like programs that involve much more work based <laughs> learning supported by classwork that is tied to what. They're learning in the workplace. Hmm. So, a huge, huge commitment on behalf of the state to trying to get apprenticeship programs on the up and up. Right. So, basically, we're going to have a system where students are going to have better opportunities beginning in elementary and middle school to learn about the varieties of work that adults do and explore career interests that might interest them. So, really, it's reaching down to elementary and middle school, talking to kids, getting them thinking about what they may want to do. And you can debate whether or not that's a good right. idea. That those debates right. have gone on in the yeah, commission, yeah. Yeah. but that's what they've decided to do here. They think that's a meaningful investment.
1: Okay, so some curriculum changes and also kind of an attitudinal change. I mean, mm-hmm. if for, you know, forgive the <laughs> forgive the buzzword, but that's that's part of what they're talking about is change the nature of these pathways through education.
0: That's right. And I think, you know, one of the big – one of the controversial pieces of this work group is that they've decided to establish a new career and technical education subcabinet. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard about a subcabinet for school safety, and this subcabinet will be very similar to that one. You'll have agency leads such as, you know, the Maryland State Department of Education – uh, Dollar, Commerce, the Governor's Workforce Development Board, Community Colleges. So mm-hmm. this will be a sub-cabinet right. that will be tasked with how to develop CTE in Maryland, how to develop career and college readiness pathways. And they're going to have some real power to determine exactly how this should happen. And they'll have some power to determine money being allocated to different programs and what standards need to be met. So this is a controversial piece in that it creates a potentially new level of bureaucracy for, for folks to deal with.
1: Yeah, and this is the, the idea of a sub cabinet, the idea of stringing together multiple state agencies uh, to work together as a group on a particular concept or, you know, a particular problem, that's not new. Mm -hmm. I mean, Maryland's done this in a number of places. We have, we have a Chesapeake Bay subcabinet. We have a smart growth subcabinet. In the past, we've had a children's subcabinet. There's, you know, there's, there's a, there's a variety of topics that, that don't fit neatly into the silos of state agencies. So you bundle several together. I think this idea though, of the subcabinet being sort of a rulemaking body and, and potentially being a, a, a funder, you know, making funding decisions or distribution distributional decisions. Um, that that I think is an unusual role for for the creation of a sub cabinet. That that could spark some controversy. And fitting with the theme, as I as I continue to react to some of the things that you're talking about, once again. It sounds like a pretty aggressive, hands-on role for the state in education policy, much of which has been a local province until now.
0: Exactly. I mean, this subcabinet is going to have authority to issue whatever regulations they think are required to implement the statewide framework that it develops for career and technical education. They can allocate roles and responsibilities to agencies. So, yes, this is another tectonic shift in the way we deal with public education in Maryland, much more of a state role.
1: This is a big undertaking. And, I mean, like everything else, it looks like the group needs to spend some time costing out the components. But it it doesn't sound – I mean, the resonance here doesn't sound as profound fiscally – I mean, right. there's there's some aspirations here, but it doesn't sound like this is going to have as big of a sideways sheet of paper as some of the other things the commission's been talking about. All
0: right, Michael, let's get into the big subject of the week, of the month, of the gubernatorial election, <laughs> of local elections, and that is pre-K.
1: So, I mean, we've been talking about this. We actually did a whole segment on this podcast a few weeks ago when the, when the, the work group, under the Kerwin Commission, was spending time, and they, you know, they they had some preliminaries. Right. They started talking about some numbers. They talked about what it would cost to do a universal offering, and you know, we we felt like the cost estimates sort of took the air out of the room. But um, it, it sounds like sounds like some of the members of the commission had a similar reaction, and it looks like they've they've sharpened their pencils a little bit. Is that fair?
0: That's fair. So yes, the original cost estimate provide universal pre K, or the at least the option for every three and four year old in the state to go into pre K was around a billion dollars. And what they've done now is they've created a sliding scale. They've also drawn back the percentage of students that they expect to be enrolled into pre-K in the various years of this 10-year implementation. So that has taken those cost estimates back a little bit. And so the idea here is expanding full-day pre-K at no cost for four-year-olds and three-year-olds from families who uh, are at 300% of the federal poverty level. And that's approximately $75,000 for a family of four in Maryland and for 4 year olds from families with incomes between 300 and 600% of federal poverty level and that's approximately 75,000 to 150,000 for a family of 4 they will be able to go to pre-k but that will be done on a sliding scale
1: so i think so this is starting to say let's make this proposal one that has an affordability component as opposed to a purely aspirational one. So that's a a natural evolution for a work group like this.
0: Yes. I mean, and so basically, you know, families that exceed these, you know, 300 and 600 percent, if they're making more than that, they're going to be expected to pay the full cost of of pre-K for their children. And then we'll subsidize that for families in between 300 and 600 Mm percent of federal poverty level.
1: I I think there probably ends up being an, an interesting and probably a challenging policy question embedded here. If I mean, it seems very likely that this commission is going to embrace some broader offering for pre-K, and and with with the offering being free to some range of students from limited means. Now, how, however, wherever you draw those lines, and you say it's free up to this point. And then after that, it becomes a sliding scale until it's completely on the family at another point. Okay, you can you can draw those points anywhere you want. You can you can express them as percents of the poverty line and and, and so forth. And that's what the commission's been doing. And I'm sure they've got a model where they can say, well, what if you set the number here or what if the sliding scale started there? Right. What what I think is interesting is at at some point you're going to end up with kind of a challenging question about how poor does a family need to be to get government help family of four and you ha- make you have income of 110 or one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and you'll have half of your pre-k paid for by the state or the county or some combination of the two that's i mean that's the new idea here mm-hmm. and at, at some point i i think there will be some who say well you know what's what's the public obligation here and i mean this is a challenge because if you're if you're a true believer that early education is a critically important time to get the most kids you can in get them into even if it's going to be a voluntary program and that's all they're talking about yes. you know you enroll your kids if you want but participation is in part going to be a function of funding yes we have to recognize that and so you're going to miss a lot of kids if you say we're not, you know, we're going to leave it on the family. It's out there if you want it. Well, that's that's basically the case today. Right. You can go buy pre-K service in a variety of, you know, in, in, a, in a variety of places today. And it's your decision whether to do that. I, I just think this is a challenge to turn this into a public obligation because it's good for everyone. It's sort of like the immunization problem. We want to make immunizations cheap so everybody gets them. You don't want to make it a user-pays kind of thing. Right, but at the same time, that means the government pays for the whole thing. Well, an immunization shot is maybe twenty bucks. Uh, a year's worth of education is more than twenty bucks, and this becomes a matter of some real fiscal consequence.
0: Exactly, and you're going to have that debate where some people will say, "Well, you know, people making over a hundred thousand dollars, they should be paying for it." And that is a nice round number, a hundred thousand. I think that catches right. people's eyes. Yeah. But, you know, they had to look at all the kids that would have the opportunity to go to pre-K. They had to draw that line somewhere. I think it's also important to mention that they've spent a lot of time trying to avoid a cliff effect and that means that a small loss in income would result in a significant loss of public support.
1: Yeah, you you don't want to have something that says at $92,000 of income you get a free ride and at $93,000 you get dirt squat nothing. Right. Right. So right. so you don't want that. That's why you have some sort of a sliding scale. But that does make this administratively more difficult. That means there's going to be a bunch of paperwork people shuffling around applications and you're going to have to fill in your tax forms and so forth. I mean this is fraught with difficulties and yet again – I'm sorry. I I keep coming back to this. The commission has not untangled any of this, and there's no one who's ready to draft a bill that's going to explain. Well, who exactly decides whether my neighbor or family qualifies for this? What forms do they have to fill out? Is that going to be the state Department of Education? All these people on on Baltimore Street are going to sort all this stuff out. They're going to implement all this stuff. Th- there's a lot. Yet to be done here, and it's almost September. It's almost September, and yes,
0: those uh, these this final report is supposed to be done in December. So yes, there's a lot to work out. We haven't even talked about the fact that this commission has not yet looked at funding formulas. That's a right. big piece of what we sure, thought they were right. going to be looking at. Wealth yep. formulas. Yeah. What happens nature. if you have
1: declining enrollment? What do right. you? What about if you have untaxable property? There's all sorts of things like that that the you know the 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 um, consultant was brought in before the commission to try and do all this legwork, uh, there's, those reports are sitting around gathering dust.
0: They are. So we will have to see if they make time to to get to that stuff. But yes, they still have a lot to do just with the work groups here. And then they need to address that. And we'll see if they get right. to it. We hope that they do. We've been anticipating that for a while.
1: And, and, and so the next step, I guess you're saying, Kevin, is next week, September 5th, is the circle the date for uh, staff, along with consultants, are going to generate at least their first estimates on what some of these components will cost. Mm-hmm. And if you 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 know, if want to do this sort of thing, it's going to cost this amount, or if you phase it over this many years, it'll cost that amount, that sort of stuff. I, it sounds to me, at least consistent with what they've been doing so far, these will be sort of gross, big picture costs, that sort of thing.
0: So. It seems like that's the plan. So yes, the, the cost estimates, the highly anticipated cost estimates should be happening on September 5th, although there has been delay before, um, but I do anticipate that we'll get some cost estimates then. And and one more thing on pre-K, I think this is important too, the ability to put kids in classrooms or have space for these kids. Mm, We know this is a big challenge. And, you know, I was talking to someone in one of our rural counties the other day, and she told me, look, we only have two daycare centers that would meet the standards that we're talking about here. So basically what we're saying is, look, we know that you don't have space in your schools for all these additional children. So we're going to ask you to work with private providers. Those providers are going to have to meet certain expectations and they'll be reimbursed for the services. That way you'll be able to offer all these children pre-K, but you won't have the problem of not having space. The question becomes, number one, If you don't have private providers where you are, if you're in a rural area and there's only a few and maybe they're full, listen, even in Annapolis, (laughs) there are waiting lists to get into daycare just about everywhere you go. I mean, it's really hard to get into these places. So that's going to be a challenge. And then when you say these folks have to get to a certain level, you know, a certain standard to be able to work with the local education authority to operate with them and provide space for pre-K, if they're not at that level... Then you run into a serious problem of where do you put these extra kids right. if you, you don't have room.
1: Yeah, we've said we've made a promise that this is available to all the kids who want to come. And here's your voucher because your family is relatively poor or here's your partial voucher because you're somewhere in the middle and go get it. Let's get those kids into schools. And then you find out there's actually not a seat. This is a little bit like the the problem we're having with opioid uh, treatment, that people, are, people with drug problems are ending up with second best alternatives for lack of provider beds. Um, We could end up with the same situation. There just aren't enough desks.
0: That's right. And, you know, the state is saying, look, local jurisdictions, you're going to be encouraged to develop innovative ways to meet the Mm. physical space constraints during the phase-in period. But, you know, they're talking about, you know, utilizing available space at senior centers or community centers. And, I don't know if you'd want a bunch of pre-K kids running around a senior center (laughs) if you're a senior living there. I'm not sure, but that's the stuff that we're talking
1: about. I think it's fine. I mean, it's fine to be optimistic that there will be innovative solutions, but I'm I mean, I'll just say I'm a little wary of having a hat hung on that, and now we're done. We're done thinking about where the space is because innovative solutions are going to solve it. This may actually require some genuine bricks and mortar and some cash money. So we'll see.
0: Absolutely. So this is a 10-year phase in. And again, these are not final recommendations. This is the work group who did work very hard, I must say. They presented these findings to the commission. For the most part, these findings were well-received, and um, I do think that a lot of what they talked about, a lot of what is in their preliminary report from that subgroup will most likely be adopted by this commission. As you've mentioned, there are a lot of kinks to work out, going to have to figure out exactly how this is all going to work, but the bottom line is, it seems like Kerwin is moving in a direction of issuing a final report, and this is the kind of stuff that we expect to be in that final report. Yep,
1: it's coming together.
0: It's coming together. All right, Michael, we've talked a lot about education. I'm sure people are sick and tired of hearing about education. <laughs> so let's talk about an interesting development that came out of Prince George's County this week.
1: So so the, the Prince George's County executive race, like all the races that are part of this this gubernatorial primary cycle, mm-hmm. um, were done with the primary. The parties have nominated and, and, and elected their candidates. And so now you know, people are, are now actively campaigning for the general election. Uh, you know, we've we've made comments previously that. In a county like Prince George's, I think every observer says that in most cases – I mean there are exceptions here or there. But in most cases, the Democratic primary tends to determine the general election. The Republican Party does not have the participation that the Democratic, Democratic Party does in that county. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, the Democrats go on to win in November. You still have contested elections. You still have you know, candidate forms and so forth. In the race for county executive, though, we now no longer have a Republican nominee.
0: Right. So Jerry Mathis, he did not accept his party's nomination. And he has decided to instead endorse Angela Alsobrooks, who was the Democratic nominee for county executive in Prince George's County.
1: So, there, I mean, there's a story behind this and, mm-hmm. and you did some writing. We, we, we found some some coverage elsewhere, but there's a piece about this in the Conduit Street blog. Um, he's got a story of meeting Ms. Alsobrooks' father and, and, you know, sort of developing a kinship and came away feeling, you know, confident about her ability. So, I mean, the specifics there aren't really our issue, right. but I think there's an interesting sort of structure of government and the conduct of elections. We already saw this an unusual twist in the Democratic primary for governor right. when Kevin Kamenetz, a former Mako president and a candidate um, who, had, who was actively seeking to, to run for governor, was on the printed ballots and died in the month of May. And there was sort of a big hubbub of what happens? Do you reprint ballots? What does it take for the name to be replaced and so forth? That was complicated for for a variety of reasons. Now we have complications in Prince George's as one candidate has declined to appear on the ballot basically.
0: So Michael, (laughs) what we want to talk about here is what happens? Is there now no Republican candidate on the ballot? What is the process when someone Uh, either drops out or is not able to accept the nomination or if they have an untimely passing what happens in a county election where this right. where this
1: happens and so people run on i mean this is not that's not new territory the idea of only one party nominating a candidate for a position and this right. is typically in a part of the state that is dominated by one party. And in this state, we have both ways. So so this is different from that in that there was, I mean, there there were people who voted in the primary and one or more Republicans were running for the nomination. Uh, this gentleman won the nomination and is now declining it. So where does that leave us?
0: If there is a vacancy in a nomination for office that is entirely within one county, then the central committee... In that county, for the party who vacated the nomination, gets to decide who the replacement candidate should be.
1: So, so in this case, it would be the Prince George's. This is exclusively a Prince George's race. Right. So it's not a congressional race, or it's not something like a state senate race that borders into a bordering county. Correct. It's exclusively Prince George's. So it would be the Prince George's County. Republican Central Committee has a window of time to do this, I assume, yes, yeah,
0: so they need to have this nomination in sixty days before the election, so I think that translates to next week. they need to have a name <laughs> right? tick tock tick tock, so they got to get with it now if this is a if there's an election that comprises two counties, right? so if right. you have two right. central committees, then mm-hmm. what do you do right? right. The answer is both of those central committees have to get together. They get to vote based on the size of their population, based on the last census numbers. Mm -hmm. They come up with the candidate that they want to replace the person who withdrew or did not accept, Mm -hmm. etc. And we know that can get dicey, and we're actually seeing that in the General Assembly this year. If folks want to look at that, they can just Google (laughs) central committee battle General Assembly, and I'm sure (laughs) that will come up. But that's just another interesting tidbit about – the power of central committees, why they are important and why I think personally people should pay attention.
1: Yeah. So so in this case, there's a relatively short window of time as, as a function of this gentleman's decision, a short window of time for the central committee to replace him on yes. the ballot yes. and still have a party nominee through that process. So that, that still could happen. It's just, you know, this these are like the miniature versions of Constitutional crises, and folks are cracking the spine on on volumes of the Maryland Code or other regulations and so forth that we haven't had to use in some time, but this has been that kind of election cycle,
0: yeah, it's fascinating. I mean we love this kind of stuff, so you know digging in there are other elections in the state where it gets more complicated. We won't bore you with that today, but if you're interested, let us know, and we will talk about it in another episode. We're down, all right, Michael. before we wrap up today, anything else you want to talk about anything on your mind specifically?
1: I'll, I'll just say my heart was warmed when last night on HQ Trivia, that's the mobile game show you play on your phone, you answer questions to win cash. It's very exciting. Anything.
0: Can we say our friends at uh, HQ Trivia, friends, friends of the podcast? Friends of the podcast. Okay. I think
1: so. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we're certainly friends of HQ Trivia. So. We, we love it. Anyhow, they had a question about Guam and their beautiful flag, and it was a great thing for our friends in Guam, our friends very good friends, Gu- also yeah. friends of the podcast, for, for them to get some highlight to the HQDs across the universe so I was very very happy to see that
0: that's awesome yeah you know if you listen to the podcast we talk about Guam we, we try to make some references we really like Guam I mean we just do so it's awesome to see that they were featured on HQ all right that'll do it for this episode of the podcast as always subscribe let your friends know give us a like it helps us get our word out until next week this is Michael and Kevin signing off have a great day